0: We want to stand at the foot of that cross like Evan did this morning and ponder what it would be like uh, to be in that position and to really think through what happened there and to see the great meaning of Scripture. Scripture always means more than it says on the surface. Sometimes, you know, it just says what it says. But sometimes, especially in the Gospel of John, there are pictures and symbols that stand out Uh, to a student of scripture that stick out like a sore thumb, that stand up and wave and say, you need to talk about this, you need to look at this, you need to ponder this, you need to stop for a while and think about this uh, that happened. So this morning, uh, Evan thought about what it would be like to be at the cross, and we've been walking through that for the last several weeks, thinking about those seven sayings of Jesus from the cross and remembering that each one of them was intentional. Uh, They were not random, particularly particularly, this fifth one that we're going to look at today. So I ask you again, have you been to the cross? Have you been there with your sin? Some of you, uh, I know, I come to church too. I'm a person just like you're a person, Doug and I are, are people too. We live in this world too. And I know that you come to church some Sundays feeling so guilty and so ashamed on the inside. You feel so far from the cross. You don't even feel worthy to cast your eyes on it and think about it or stand there in your mind's eye. Let me remind you, you never were, and you never will be. There has never been a person on the face of the earth who was worthy of the cross and what happened there. When we come and stand at the foot of the cross, whether you're the pastor or whether you're, you feel like you're the chief of all sinners, the ground around the cross is level ground. And I would suggest to you that the more shame that you feel for your sin as you stand at the foot of that cross, the more you have a sense of your need and the more ready you are to receive the blessing of the cross. So this morning, I, I want to introduce you to the fifth cry from the cross. And as we do, you might wonder what's, what in the world's significance it could have not only in the whole drama of the cross, but what significance it might have for you. And this morning, some of you are going to see that clearly for the first time. You've been a Christian all your life, and you've thought, thought about the cross and pondered the cross all your life, but there's a picture this morning that you've never seen. I know because I remember the first time I saw it, and you're going to see it today. We're remembering that the cross was a place of suffering. Uh, The Romans did not invent crucifixion. The Phoenicians introduced crucifixion uh, to the world, but it was perfected as a science of torture by the Romans. Uh, They adapted it and created a method of execution that would cause the most possible suffering with the least possible loss of consciousness. They made it to be a slow and agonizing death, and it was so by design. It almost seems strange to say, knowing what we know now, but there was no mercy at the cross, no relief, no sympathy, unless you count taking a club and breaking a man's legs To hasten His death, an act of mercy. There was no mercy for Jesus. There was no relief for His suffering. No lessening of His agony. Six hours our Lord spent on that cross. Six hours of suffering. Jesus marked those six hours with seven cries. We looked at the first four. And now we turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. And we're going to look at our Lord's fifth cry. From the cross. John chapter 19 verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, He said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and it is finished is the sixth cry from the cross. We'll stop at verse 29. Now, as we think about these things this morning, I want you to pray that the Lord will show you Uh, what you need to see personally. I remind you that this fifth cry from the cross came after that season of darkness that Jesus endured. And somewhere near the end of that darkness, He cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Remember that He was arrested the night before. I know you know all these things, but we're thinking about the cross. We need to stand there and remember He was was beaten. A crown of thorns had been pressed into his scalp. Prior to going to the cross, he was scourged. That means he was whipped uh, with a whip studded with metal and bone, which was intended to rip chunks of flesh from his body, and he received 39 lashes from that whip. Then he was forced to pick up his cross, which he was not able to carry because of weakness. Then he was nailed hands and feet to that cross. And then the cross was dropped into place, further tearing his wounds. And he'd been there almost six hours when we come to this fifth cry. Now Jesus' words reveal to us, and I want you just to look at the verse, and we're going to walk through it just for a minute before we get to the points of the message. His words reveal to us that he was not a helpless victim on the cross. He was a willing sacrifice with complete awareness of his circumstances and his mission. And never once did he lose sight of why he was there, why he was suffering. And so John wrote, after this, after that period of darkness, after he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And remember, each gospel writer gives us a different perspective of the cross. John doesn't give us everything that Jesus said. Matthew doesn't give us everything that Jesus said. Mark, Luke doesn't give us everything that Jesus said. When we put them all together, we have that picture of the cross. After this, Jesus knowing. What does that mean? It means He was complete control on the cross. He knew what was coming when He was in the garden, and there in the garden He prayed, Father, let this cup pass from Me, but nevertheless not My will but Thine be done. What cup do you think Jesus was talking about? It was the cup of suffering and sorrow. It was the cup of the Lord's anger. Psalm 75, verse 8. The Bible talks about the cup that the wicked must drink down to the very dregs. In Revelation chapter 14, Verse 10, of the wicked God says, He will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger. That cup Jesus drank for you when He was on the cross. The full measure of the wrath of God He was taking on Himself. So this verse says, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished. That's wonderful as it says it, just as it says it. The worst was over. Death would be a relief. The battle had been fought and won, but not without consequences to the body and soul of our Lord. He hung on that cross. And so in agony, Jesus was able to form at this point only one word. In Greek, it's just one word. I don't know what it was in Aramaic. We're not told. The Bible doesn't record that word for us as it does some Aramaic words. But in the Greek, it's just one word. Translated into three in English, I am thirsty. It was not a whisper. It was uttered out of deep and desperate anguish. I am thirsty. Now we're going to talk about that thirst under four different headings. Number one, his thirst was a physical thirst. This is the second time, by the way, we ever see the Lord expressing physical thirst. And the first time, you might remember, he sat down by a well, wearied from his journey, and he asked a Samaritan woman for a drink of water. And while he was there, he engaged her in a conversation about spiritual things, and he offered her living water, and she wondered how he would draw the water because she said, the well is deep. But the well from which he would draw that living water was deeper than she knew, and it would cost him... Uh, more to acquire it than she knew, and that was what left him physically emaciated and caused him to cry, I thirst. So from a practical standpoint, it was a physical thirst that Jesus suffered on the cross. You didn't need me to explain that to you. You knew that already. Parched lips and swollen tongue that accompanied the massive loss of blood and burning fever that may have set in from His wounds. Some suggest that Jesus was in hemorrhagic shock from the loss of blood. Others uh, suggest other things. He was dying, obviously. No comfort, no comforters. Nothing to ease His pain or lessen His agony. The Bible says in Psalms, He says, My tongue cleaves to the roof, to to, to my jaws. Uh, uh, And so His tongue sticking to the side of His mouth, He was just thirsty. Do you remember some weeks ago when we looked at that wonderful story of the Battle of Bethlehem in the Old Testament? Uh, David's boyhood home, it was overrun by the Philistine army, and David and some of his mighty men were hiding and uh, they were trying to fight that battle. And David expressed a desire. He said, He didn't say, I thirst, I'm thirsty. He said, Oh, almost under his breath, oh, how I wish I had a drink of water from the well at Bethlehem. And we talked about that water and, and the water of home and how you, you like the water of home. And it's just the water at home is better than anywhere. And David was thirsty and he wanted a drink of that water. And how three of his mighty men fought through the Philistine army to get David Just a canteen full of water, and when they brought it back, David poured it out. Uh, But they would have done anything for their king. And here is Jesus on the cross, wishing for just a sip of water. Where are his disciples? Hiding. Where are those he healed? They were absent. Who was there who would fight through the Roman army just to bring the king of kings a drink of water? Not one of his followers, not one. He was thirsty. Now, if you read the account of the cross, you'll find that Jesus is offered a drink twice. The first, at the beginning, He refuses. According to Matthew chapter 27, verse 34, it was a wine mixed with gall. That was a liver-bile solution uh, that served as a painkiller. Jesus refused that drink. He refused to dull his senses to the suffering that was ahead of him. That was offered at the beginning. This drink offered at the end was a sour wine, a a vinegar mixture, a soldier's drink, no doubt, that he carried with him to the cross to quench his own thirst during the hours that he guarded the cross. And maybe the way he drank it was to take that sponge and dip it in it and suck it out of the sponge. I have no idea why there was a sponge at the cross. But first, it simply reveals that physical thirst that Jesus endured on the cross. His thirst was a physical thirst. Second, His thirst revealed the sorry, futile efforts uh, of men to quench a thirst that only He can feel. On the cross was the one who offered living water, being offered the sour wine of the world. Think of all the things the world thirsts for, all the things that we seek to quench our thirst, because there's an emptiness, there's an emptiness that plagues humanity. You're thirsty. I'm thirsty. Just like the woman at the well was thirsty. But you and I are thirsty for all the wrong things, and the sour wine of the world only leaves you more thirsty than ever for things that just won't satisfy The deep longing of your soul. The woman at the well is an example of one who turned to the sour wine of the world to try to feel the the burning thirst of her soul. And she uh, had married a man, and he didn't work out. So she said, I'll just get another. And she got another, and he didn't work out. So she got a third, and he didn't work out. And so she got a fourth, and she was still thirsty, and he didn't work out. And so she got a fifth. And she was still thirsty. And when Jesus sat down with her to talk about the burning thirst of her soul, He said, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. She was thirsty. And she was still thirsty. And you and I are thirsty. In fact, some of you are consumed by some thirst. You've become addicted to some potion or some passion that the the world offers You have an insatiable thirst. It can't be quenched. You can't get enough. You're never satisfied. It's sour wine. It promises, but it can't deliver. What a contrast between what they offered Him at the cross and what He had to offer. And so there on the cross, Jesus tasted the sour wine. The sour wine of disappointment. He tasted the sour wine of shame. He tasted the sour wine of sin. He tasted the sour wine of rejection. He tasted the sour wine of heartbreak. When Jesus hung on that cross, He hung there as your substitute. And on that cross, He took your thirst as His own so that the alcoholic doesn't have to drink anymore. The thief doesn't have to steal anymore. The liar doesn't have to lie anymore. Jesus Won that battle on the cross when he hung there and suffered in your place and suffered extreme thirst so that you and I don't have to be thirsty anymore. Jesus can satisfy your soul. Now, his thirst was a physical thirst first. Second, his thirst was <coughs> revealed the futile efforts of men to quench a thirst that only he can feel. Third, his thirst was a spiritual thirst. A spiritual thirst. Remember that Jesus endured three hours of darkness. Three hours of separation from God. Three hours of Him who knew no sin being made sin for us. Paul tells us in the book of Philippians that in chapter 2, verses 5-11, through that Jesus emptied Himself. Now, theologians across the centuries have speculated what that means. We have no idea the full extent of what that means. But certainly... He was empty now, depleted. In Isaiah chapter 53, in the Old Testament, we read that He poured out His soul unto death. In Psalm 22, the psalm of the cross, we hear Him say, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now in the pit of his soul, there's a burning thirst for God. The deer pants for the water brooks. But here was a soul that truly longed for fellowship with the Father. That thirst was a spiritual thirst. A thirst that could only be quenched by oneness with the Father. Do you know the same thirst that Jesus had on the cross? Is what is wrong with you? You're so dissatisfied, so unfulfilled, so empty, so thirsty, and you've tried so many different things to quench that thirst and fill that emptiness, and Jesus is the only one who can fill it. I remember long ago, and some of you will remember the song, Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup. I lift it up and make me whole. How we need that today. So Jesus' thirst was a physical thirst, number one. Second, it revealed the futile efforts of men to quench a thirst that only He can feel. Number three, it was a spiritual thirst. And number four, in order that Scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. One Greek word, dipso. Dipso! If He said it in Greek so the Romans could hear it. I don't know if He said it in Aramaic and what it would sound like. One word that expressed a facet of his suffering that would fulfill Scripture. Now, if you haven't listened to me up till now, I'm going to ask you to listen for these last moments because I'm going to show you something wonderful. Remember, Jesus was intentional in what He said here. He was expressing thirst that Scripture might be fulfilled. He said, I'm thirsty in order to fulfill Scripture. And so... Is this simply fulfilling a scripture that said he would be thirsty? Or is there something deeper hidden in this moment? Well, you remember Evan. Evan gave us a good sermon illustration just a few minutes ago. And he played the part of the Roman soldier who lifted up the sponge with the sour wine. And then we said in scripture it was not a stick like we used. It was a branch of hyssop. Hyssop was more like a weed than like a tree. It would have been flimsy. Probably something growing out of the rocky outcropping of Calvary, the place of the skull. The sponge filled with sour wine was placed on that branch of hyssop. What's the significance of hyssop, by the way? Why? And only John says it. He's the only one who says it was a branch of hyssop. Well, I take you back to the book of Exodus. Exodus to the first use of hyssop in Scripture and the one most important for us to understand what was happening there. You remember at that point in Exodus, the 12th chapter, every family had sacrificed a lamb. The destroying angel was about to pass over the homes of everyone in Egypt and the family was told in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lentil and the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside his house until morning. And of course you know what happened. Those who took the hyssop and brushed the blood over the doorpost of their house, they put the hyssop in the basin and brushed the blood over the doorpost of their house. The next morning, everything was okay. The destroying angel had passed over them. Now from that time forward, they celebrated that moment in a feast called the Passover. And at Passover, remember Jesus had just celebrated Passover with His disciples. The Passover lamb was being sacrificed. And they would take at Passover the hyssop and put it in the blood. Now, and that blood secured once a year, secured the mercy of God for their sins. Who was on the cross? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, a verse you may not know, Paul said, For Christ... Our Passover has been sacrificed. So in order that Scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. So in the providence of God, a Roman soldier took a branch of hyssop, put a sponge on it, uh, a sponge filled with sour wine of the world. That sponge, when placed to the lips of Jesus, would have touched the blood of the Passover lamb. Sour wine went up and mercy came raining down. Mercy for you. Mercy for me. This sanctuary is full of thirsty people. Your thirst demonstrated. My thirst demonstrated every time we sip the sour wine of the world in an effort to quench that thirst. But today... You don't have a branch of hyssop and you don't have a sponge. But you can still extend your hand by faith and lay your hand on Jesus as your substitute and it will be as it was that day. Mercy will come raining down. You see how heaven got wet. Isn't that interesting? Jesus sipped from the sponge and the blood of the Passover lamb Came down from the cross. That is the picture that John wants us to see. When Jesus hung on that cross, he hung there as your substitute and mine. He took your thirst as his own so that the alcoholic doesn't have to drink anymore. The adulterer doesn't have to commit adultery anymore. The liar doesn't have to lie anymore. The thief doesn't have to steal anymore. The person who's after some potion or passion doesn't have to use that to quench their thirst anymore because Jesus is the one who can satisfy your soul. Let's pray.